This episode of See Here doesn't have an introduction by Tim. Damn international dateline. Episode 65 of the See Here podcast, and this is a rather unusual one because it's very rare that I don't have the company of my esteemed colleagues, Mr. Bernard Stickwell and Mr. Tim Merrill. We had issues with time and space and all that sort of thing. We couldn't agree on a mutually good time over the uh, international dateline to get this show recorded. So instead, a man who is filling two other men's shoes but I think he's more than capable of the task. My good friend, local film script writer and general all-round film buff, Mr. Paul Ryan. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you for having me, Morris. It's a pleasure and an honor. We're more than happy to have you on the show. Now, I have to apologize about one thing. The other part of this show will feature an interview with Gillian Armstrong talking about today's featured film, which is 1982's starstruck and you were supposed to be part of that interview but bloody skype i think it's a wonderful invention but when it doesn't work it sucks so we couldn't get you on that interview along with her but what we decided to do is we're going to have a bit of a chat our thoughts on the film and what it's meant to us and all that sort of thing so that's what we're going to be doing for a little bit and then we'll feature jillian herself talking about her recollections of the making of Starstruck. And then at the end of the show, we'll talk about what's happening next and all that sort of exciting stuff. But Paul, when I asked you to uh, join me for this show, you exhibited some level of enthusiasm. So give me your history with Star. Actually, probably what we should do first is let the listeners know who may not actually know what this film is about. Because there's another film called Starstruck. I think it might be like some American or Canadian feature. I don't know, but we'll look that up. But the 1982 film. The summary of Starstruck according to the IMDb, is young woman wants to become the next big singer with the help of her friends and despite the wishes of her working-class family. Yep, up to the usual IMDb standard. I love it. Uh, (laughs) Getting to the crunch of it all, when do you recall was the first time that you saw Starstruck? I was just over a year old when Starstruck came out. So your mum would have taken you to see it then, right? Yeah, yeah. Actually, according to what I'm reading here, the film's release date in Australia was the 8th of April 1982, which makes it just a little bit before my first birthday. So yes, obviously my mum took me to see it when it came out uh, at the uh, Regent Theatre in Ballarat. No, that's actually not true, unfortunately. Uh, The first time that I saw Starstruck was just a few weeks ago in preparation for this episode. Starstruck, like a lot of Gillian Armstrong's films has been uh, one on my list of shame for Australian cinema. Up until a few weeks ago, the only one of Gillian's films that I'd seen prior to this was Death Defying Acts from 2008, I think, with Guy Pearce and Catherine Zeta-Jones. And I've been doing a bit of cramming in the time since I agreed to do this episode. Just caught up on uh, my brilliant career, Mrs. Sofell, uh, High Tide, and 
of course, starstruck and getting to see this uh, progression of Gillian Armstrong as a filmmaker across those works has been uh, really, really fascinating. In the case of Starstruck in particular, just lots of fun. Yeah, well, there's certainly quite a difference in tone between uh, that variety of films. But as Gillian will explain in the interview, she was very keen to not be typecast as only a creator of period film pieces. She was very keen to uh, make something that was completely different. And Starstruck really is a long way from uh, my brilliant career. Both wonderful films, but showed her diversity. And, Absolutely. Uh, maybe not quite in the last few weeks. I had seen Starstruck before, but it was only like in the last couple of years. So, yeah, also a big list of shame for me. But I do remember the film coming out and screening at Hoyt's Cinema Centre in uh, Burke Street here in Melbourne. And I do remember seeing Joe Kennedy performing Body and Soul on Countdown. And I think you found a film clip. Yes, yes, the clip of that. It's on YouTube for anyone listening. But uh, it was also featured on the now out of print Umbrella Entertainment DVD release from a few years ago. Nowadays, if you want to get hold of the DVD, it is available as a Blue Underground release. We're hoping that due to a recent restoration by the National Film and Sound Archive that it may get a Blu-ray release sometime soon. If anyone from the uh, National Film and Sound Archive is listening, get onto that. Absolutely. There's been some clips from the restoration on YouTube and the restoration is absolutely stunning. Just in those little bits that I've seen, the colours are so much more vibrant than the DVD. There's more detail and it just really pops. Mm. So here's hoping we get to see it in HD down the track. Yeah, indeed. Where do you see this film in terms of the output? Because I mean, I'm thinking that there were films like, I think, Man from Snowy River came out that year. Uh, Squizzy Taylor came out that year. And actually, the connection between that film and this film is David Atkins, who did the choreography on Starstruck, but was like the lead actor of Squizzy Taylor. This is a film made for an Australian audience. And I just wanted to know where you saw the film in context of other films made that year and its legacy onto uh, films that followed. What really struck me watching it for the first time was being a child of the the 80s. Um, <laughs> it was kind of getting very much of a sense of just a real feel for kind of working class life of that time, even though obviously the film is stylized and has people bursting into song. There is this kind of very palpable early 80s working class grit to the look and feel of the film. And one of the things that really stood out for me was the element of the music show Wow, reflecting the likes of Countdown and Sounds and mm. shows that were on at that age. I, I was very little when those shows were mostly on, but I still vividly remember those being a big part of my early childhood and a particularly big part of the weekend when Countdown was on. So that immediately situated it in that early 80s kind of mode for me. But in terms of the films that were out at the time, it's interesting. It's Starstruck being partially government funded. It doesn't feel much of a piece with, say, some of the, guess, quote, you know, quote unquote, more highbrow films of that era that were coming out of the Australian Film Commission from that time and more kind of the privately funded 10BA films. Watching some of the nightclub sequences and some of the musical sequences actually thought forward a bit to Burt Dealing's Dead Easy, his maker of the 70s film Pure Shit. Yes, uh, yes. And Dead Easy is set in King's Cross and amongst the nightclubs. And there's a very similar kind of stylization, similarly bathed in that kind of new wave, neon and synth 
sort of energy. Watching films like Dead Easy, I felt like Starstruck was situated a bit more with that than with the highbrow Australian films of the time. This is a more earthy, more commercial kind of film, and, and more commercial in, in the best way. Like It's got a lot of heart and a lot of soul, a lot of body and soul. as <laughs> yes. um, But yeah, it, it feels like it's a film that just really wants to connect with an audience and really puts its heart out there, puts its heart on its sleeve. That's something that Gillian says later on in the interview, that it didn't receive any critics' nominations for Best Film of the Year, and because they had already gone and put her into a box, and they said, oh yeah, this is just not what we expected from the director of My Brilliant Career. And once again, she wasn't making films for people's expectations. She was making films that excited her and interested her. And the love of her characters really, really comes out. I mean, there's conflict, but there's no one who comes out in this film, the typical thing of bad versus good or anything like that. There's just people trying to achieve their dreams and the disappointments and ultimately what they do to achieve those dreams. And yes, it is very, very stylized, but as you say, it does have that earthy feel because everyone has a dream and maybe even if we don't necessarily all try to make it to the top of the pop charts and not everyone goes to the same extent that Angus does to get his cousin Jackie into the Sydney Opera House, we can all dream that somewhere where we'd like to be. And she's obviously going to put a lot of love into these two characters. I mean, well, Stephen McLean as the writer of the film has on the paper and then Gillian Armstrong has definitely gone and fleshed that out in a visual sort of way. Yeah, absolutely. It's a testament to Gillian Armstrong's work with these two young actors, Joe Kennedy and Ross Armstrong, that you you get this chemistry and this sense of familiarity and family between the two of them that's so palpable and vivid for two young actors who think that Joe Kennedy had only done um, children's theatre prior to Starstruck and uh, Ross Armstrong had done some television. But for actors that young to sell something like that so convincingly is, is a real testament to Gillian Armstrong as a director. So I hadn't sort of gone and looked this up, but I believe you're familiar with what else that Joe Kennedy went on to do. I mean, we know that Ross Armstrong unfortunately went and left the film industry due to ill health, I think. But yeah. um, Joe Kennedy went on to do a lot of other stuff. Yeah, she was um, acting in film and TV right up until the last credits eight years ago in Red Dog. That's one of the townsfolk in Red Dog. Oh my goodness, I need to go back to that and spot her. Yeah, I, I saw Red Dog for the first time only a couple of years ago and uh, oh, definitely wow. need to go back and check that out. But she'd been in a wide range of Australian films and TV shows. Some of the films that Joe Kennedy has been in have included... Uh, the likes of Shine, Innocence, directed by uh, Paul Cox. She's been in a couple of Rolf to Hear films, Dr. Plonk and Dance Me to My Song. Oh, my goodness. Those are all, like, significant filmmakers and significant films. Dr. Plonk, I confess, was not my favourite to hear film, but it was a cool exercise. And Dance Me to My Song, though, was an incredible film. Yeah, and in preparing for this episode, I watched the film that she did after Starstruck, Ian Pringle's 1985 film Wrong World, which is a world away from Starstruck. It's the story of a doctor played by uh, Richard Moyer from Round the Twist who has fallen out of his profession after volunteering in South America and seeing corruption and, and all sorts of things that have kind of broken his spirit, comes back to Melbourne with a heroin problem and falls in with a female junkie played by Joe Kennedy. And they go on a road trip from Melbourne to her hometown of Nil in Victoria to um, take her back home and to kind of develop a connection across this road trip. But one thing that is similar is that Joe Kennedy sings in it uh, when they're travelling in the car and her song is used as a, a recurring motif over the end credits as well. But uh, she also appeared in lots of television as well, including Stingers and I think The Flying Doctors. I could be wrong there. 
quite a wide-ranging career since I've left the business um, in recent years and now works as a, according to a Starstruck fan site, uh, Joe Kennedy now works as a meditation-based therapist. Okay. Yeah. So I know we're not sort of like going into too much depth on the plot or certain scenes in the film, but a lot of that's covered off in the interview that you'll hear in a few minutes. But in terms of what this film was as maybe a touchstone for films that followed in terms of visual style, I imagine that people like Boz Lerman were paying strong attention to this and PJ Hogan, the Muriel's Wedding. There's just something of that style. I mean, those mm. films sort of were more dramatic in their element, but just in terms of bright visuals, this sort of seems to be like a cornerstone in Australian cinema. I was thinking recently that there was a bit of a kindred spirit kind of thing between Starstruck and Muriel's Wedding, seeing these wish fulfillment stories of young women trying to you know, change their lives and change their situation in the world, and that they're both you know, very stylized and kind of heightened. Definitely an influence there. In terms of Australian cinema overall, it's unfortunate that we don't have the kind of tradition with musicals that um, some other countries have. Back in the heydays of the 30s and 40s, we had musical reviews and the odd musical comedy here and there and the odd concert film, but no great Australian tradition of musicals. But I think that also kind of pays off in that Starstruck is a musical that doesn't feel like your traditional musical Yes, as well. That the choreography, it's very imaginative and very clever, but it's not beholden to any sort of strict coded cinematic tradition like there's there are elements of busby berkeley in the pool sequence it's a lot of very impressively synchronized choreography during the one good reason scene in lizard club but it all feels kind of fresh and different no one's trying to make an mgm musical out of this and that's i mean in a good way yeah i guess also like given where the film sits in terms of where musicals were commercially around that time that's probably to its benefit as well you had a bit of a resurgence in musicals with the success of greece but then you had the the failures of the likes of Can't Stop the Music and uh, yeah, all of those that kind of took the air out of the balloon straight away. So successful musicals were really an anomaly around that time as well. And yes. I think you had an audience that associated musicals with the old MGM style and didn't want to see necessarily see that again in a modern context. So with something like Starstruck, you get the fun and the joy of a musical. But again, it's not beholden to old visual traditions. Mm. It's going to be interesting to see how this translates to stage. I know that, you know, Muriel's Wedding and the Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert have both made the crossover to the stage. It used to be the other way around. But I think more than anything, Starstruck actually screams to me like an obvious choice for mm. a stage adaptation. And Jillian will have some interesting things to say about that later on in the interview as well. So any final thoughts before we go to the interview? I regret that it's taken me so long to finally get around to, to seeing Starstruck after all this time, but I'm just so glad that I did because it's just a truly joyous experience. It's just so much energy and fun and happiness in this film. And I think that that is something, that, that kind of level of just pure fun and joy uh, is something that you don't necessarily associate with Australian film. Right. Stereotype of the realistic Australian film isn't as apparent here. This is just an hour and a half of pure fun. Like, I just wish that I'd, uh, <laughs> I'd discovered, I'd gotten to see the film uh, a lot earlier. We mentioned Muriel's Wedding earlier on, and that starts out like it's going to be a comedy of sorts, but it turns very quickly into yeah. family drama and personal drama. And, you know, it's a great film for all of that. But yes, you're right. It seems like it's unfashionable to make something that is just pure happiness and pure joy and 
I still sort of think to the body and soul scene in the film. I mean, there's a lot of great songs, a lot of great moments in it, but there's just something about all those people in the pub who've probably watched Jackie and Angus grow up and they're all supportive of her. And it's just one of the most joyous scenes I can think of in cinema. I'm not going to qualify it by saying one of the most joyous scenes in Australian cinema. But if I were to name 10 scenes from films that make me smile like an idiot, my 10 favourite scenes, that one's going to be in it. I've always gone and said that the scene in That Thing You Do, where they first hear their song on the radio, is just one of those stupidly happy scenes. And I think body and soul is every bit it's equal. I love them both. And I'd be interested to know, any listeners out there, please post to the See Here podcast group. Regardless, musical, not musical, what are your favourite happy scenes from a film? What make you smile just incessantly? Because those are certainly two of mine. All right, so what we'll do at this point is we'll play the trailer from the film give it a bit of a listen and anyone who's Australian and of my vintage will hopefully know and have seen the film or at least be familiar with a lot of the songs in it I'm not sure how much it's translated uh, over the years to um, American audiences although by virtue of the fact that it has a blue underground release must mean that there is an American home release audience for it yeah we both urge you to go see this we'll play the trailer play the interview and then uh, Paul and I will come back at the end of the show to wrap things up and talk about what's happening in next month's episode of See Here when Bernie and Tim return. You're listening to episode 65. From the director of My Brilliant Career, a totally new kind of Australian film. Last night at the Lizard Lounge, Jackie blew the roof off. What whist? Hot air? Star quality, Uncle. Star quality. My cousin Angus, he's reading this book, Sex Psychology, and he reckons guitars are like phallic symbols. And guitarists masturbate for a living. She's got body, she's got soul. I'm gonna party without her. I'm gonna trust her with my Why do you keep singing these pointless bloody songs? No. I just close my eyes and I sing. And I feel like I'm above the crowd. It's that little something extra. Starstruck, an Australian musical comedy directed by Gillian Armstrong from Cinecom International Films. Welcome back to 
to episode 65 of the See Here podcast, and I'm really hugely excited. On the other end of a phone connection, I have Director Gillian Armstrong in Sydney. I believe you're in Sydney? I am in Sydney, yes, on a, on a, a rainy day. Goodness me. Oh, well, it's been pretty horrible down here in Melbourne over previous days, so uh, you have my empathy as well as my sympathy. Oh, we need it, though. We need it. The way we're <laughs> So we're here to focus on your film from 1982, Starstruck. Before we sort of get to that, I just wanted to ask you if you could set up a little bit about the film industry of 1982 that the film was born into. The film industry had gone through this big rebirth in Australia over the 1970s, and you know, which was considered a purple patch, the golden age. And by the time 1982 rolled around... There were big films and small films like you know, Man from Snowy River and Monkey Grip and Squizzy Taylor. Did you feel that the industry was still exciting? I mean, you started out a few years beforehand with My Brilliant Career, and that would have been a very exciting time for you. But in the early 80s, did the film industry f still feel exciting to you? Yes, no, no. I think we still felt very positive about the Australian film industry. Um, yes, as you said, um, My Brilliant Career was my first feature, and that came out in 79, and you know, being preceded by amazing films like Picnic Hang Rock and Breaker Moran and Devil's Playground and so on. There was almost like a sort of second generation of directors starting to come through around the time I did Starstruck, because actually Bruce Beresford, who did Breaker Moran, Peter Weir, Picnic Hang Rock, were getting their Hollywood offers. I was also um, getting Hollywood offers. My brilliant career had done so well internationally, but I felt like I didn't want to just immediately rush off. And I sort of, I mean, it wasn't something I expected, by the way, and, and nobody did. This was whole fresh and new. I mean, it was new that we actually had a film industry, and truly it was only because we had government funding, finally, in the 70s, to be able to make our own films. And I just felt like, well, I'm an Australian, and our culture is so different. I mean, I did go to and make, have meetings and all that stuff, and they were like, you know, the Americans were like, when you're the hot, they're like, come and do this and, you know, work with Dustin Hoffman and Jane Fonda. And I'm like, hey, hang on a second. I've just, like, survived my first feature and <laughs> I knew I still had so much more to learn. Plus, I'd worked with a really fantastic team, my editor, DP, and so on. And I thought, well, I know how much the team puts in for a director. I don't know whether I just want to go off to a foreign country with a whole lot of strangers. So I definitely wanted to do my second film in Australia. And I definitely wanted to do something that was very, very different to my brilliant career. I realized already that I'd been just put in a box that, oh, she does films about women said in the past. And, and I was basically offered every single film about a woman achiever, you know, whoever, whichever person, woman flew the first plane, climbed a mountain, rode a camel. And so I started looking for something that showed another side of me because I didn't like this label, you know, she does pretty period films, even though actually my brilliant career is quite revolutionary. It wasn't as pretty. So I went looking for something that was going to be very different. That turned out to be Starstruck. Mm. Well, given that the 70s in Australia, for the it seems like for a large part, were either films about machismo or period pieces or crime thrillers. I mean, I'm, I know there are other films, but that seems to be a lot of what Australia was about. Then did people say to you when you signed on to do Starstruck, a musical, which was a genre that had not really been done that much in Australia, if at all? I don't think at all. I mean, maybe there was one in the 30s because, you know, we actually had this burgeoning film industry in the 30s and, mm. you know, Dad and Dave and so on and the Chevelle films and so on. 
But we had an incredible music scene and that was one of the reasons that I wanted to do it because as a, someone who'd grown up in Melbourne and, and basically starting with Countdown and then going to all the clubs and knowing all the amazing bands that we had and the original Australian music that was coming out, I was very confident that we could do something that had Australian music. But well, the first hurdle was actually that the producers didn't want me. I'd heard through friends, crew friends, about this wonderful script that Stephen McLean had written now, Stephen had grown up in Melbourne. He was like our main character, Angus. He, he grew up in a pub. He had an older sister, you know, who was sort of glamorous. And he had dreams of both rock and roll and, and he loved the old movies. He ended up, he was a writer for Gosset, which was the main music magazine in Melbourne in, I suppose, the late 60s, early 70s. Mm-hmm. And Molly, Molly, Molly was on Gosset. David Elphick, the producer of Starstruck, was. And so was Stephen McLean. And then Stephen um, left and went to London and ended up a major rock writer there. You know, there was friends with Lillian Roxon. He was very part of that whole music scene. And then he had written this script that's basically sort of a tongue-in-cheek takeoff of Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland put on a show. There's like two kids, they're trying to make it, but he wrote it in Australian context. And when I was sneaked the script by my friends, it didn't have any music. It just had in the script that they, you know, then everyone in the pub gets up and sings and dances. It would be a box saying, song here. But I I love the characters and I love the humour and that's what, apart from the fact of always being a music fan and especially an Australian music fan, um, it was that and then Stephen's lovely, quirky, good-hearted fable story that drew me to it. I had a few hurdles to go to talk the producers into accepting the girl that was judged as the period film director into allowing me to have a go at their pop musical. Me and my girl sat alone in a room It's interesting you say there that Stephen had been a big fan of old Hollywood musicals and this film at its core really does seem to me to be an old-fashioned musical rather than necessarily a rock and roll musical. I mean, I was thinking that the only other... It's not even a musical, but a music-related film that had come only a few years before was Chris Levine's Oz, A Rock and Roll Road Movie and that is seeming to cater to rock and roll fans, young rock and roll fans of the time, whereas Starstruck, despite the fact that the music was maybe of a new wave bent, having the swingers perform and write a lot of the music and Tim Finn, but it Mm -hmm. it really is, as you say, that Australian sense of humour and that very old-fashioned, I want to get into show business type of story. Yes, I mean, that's what makes it so unique, really. It was, as I said, a sort of tongue-in-cheek takeoff of like an old Hollywood musical, except it was contemporary. But yeah, the songs, like in a traditional musical, they relate to the story. And that was the thing that we were, later on, when we were actually trying to put the music together, we realised what a special thing it is to actually be able to write music that fits with a narrative and fits with a character. In the end, it was really only a handful of people who had that skill. I suppose we didn't realise how hard it was and what a you know, really special talent that takes. But I could talk further about that if you want me to. Yeah, absolutely. So what in the beginning, as I said, um, what, you know, once I met, I, it was Stephen McLean, by the way, that I, I met him at a party. He was back in Sydney. And I'd said to him, oh, you know, you're the, you wrote that script and I love it and everything. And basically... 
he liked my blue suede 1940s Judy Garland type shoes and went back to the producers <laughs> and said, anyone that wears shoes like that can direct my movie. Um, and that's when um, David Elphick and Richard Brennan, the producers, agreed and took me on board. Stephen and I got on like a house on fire. You know, we did a couple of drafts together and so on. And then when we got the sort of production together, David and I initially um, appointed Cameron Allen as our musical director. And we had Mushroom Records involved, obviously. We put sort of storylines out saying, you know, we need a song that would make everyone feel joyous in a pub and they'll get up and dance. You know, we need a sad song, we did all of this or whatever. We wanted to have a song which would be the theme song, which is the Starstruck song, which in, this would suit our characters, blah, blah. And there were, you know, many, many people sent in demos. And I went out to big name writers, songwriters as well. And then Cameron came, you know, we all kept saying, you know, how's it going with the music? Have you found anything yet that we could listen to and everything? And we finally had this meeting with Cameron where he was literally like, there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing. And I don't think I can do this. And... This is, you know, like we were in, wheels were churning. We by then had cast Ross and Joe and, you know, we had a crew and we had a shooting day. We had a choreographer, David Atkins, and David Elphick, he took one box home. I took another box home. They were all on their little tapes. And we just started both listening to absolutely everything we could and putting them in piles of this, something possible. That was when I realised that the people who submitted the song that it's meant to be the happy song, that everyone would get up and dance, you think, that's not happy at all. <laughs> <laughs> who would ever get up and dance for that? And that's how I realised, well, a lot of... So there's some absolutely brilliant songwriters for bands, but often it's an inspiration someone has in the shower or, you know, they're driving on a highway. We knew that the lyrics of some of these demos may not necessarily fit, and we thought, you know, that's something we could work on. But even just musically or emotionally, which is really, you know, like I have no training in music, but I'm there as the emotional heart of the story, and I'm like, and, you know, David as well. And so then he and I got together, and I'd say, look, what about this one, this monkey in me? song this you know this maybe this could be somewhere well it's sticky in the jungle can't hide from the heat jungle drums are playing a jungle beat well as hollywood hearts watch them flutter you can't make the star of a dildog in a little monkey in me it makes me want to do it something really catchy about it and so we, we managed to find a maybe three or four that were just sort of from the randoms. I shouldn't call them randoms because some of them were wonderful writers. And then we had talked to the swingers and to Phil Judd about being the main band because in the story there's a band and they're, you know, rock dream is maybe one day see them or be with them and so on. And I had one meeting and they, anyway, their manager said they really wanted to do it. They, you know, Phil was very quiet. He doesn't make eye contact. He's incredibly shy. And I said afterwards um, to David Elphick, I said, I mean, do they really want to be in this? I mean, are we really ever going to hear from them again? Because also, he said he would have a go at the opening song, The Starstruck. And by then, I'd heard so many bad demos for our theme song. I'd said to my producer, you know, maybe we should just forget our theme song. I mean, anything that's got the title in it, it just they just sound so corny, so terrible. 
Anyway, the swingers were recording their next album and they were going up the North Coast. And we got a message a couple of days after they'd gone saying, well, we're working on this theme song. And I was like, oh, that's good. They said, but we actually got a bit more time than we thought because our drummer has broken his arm. So we can't actually record our own music. And by, and by the way, the first demo had just arrived of the Starstruck song. And I've got to say, truly, we'd heard dreadful, dreadful demos. We put this on and we went... Oh my God, someone's actually written something that's actually good and passable and could work. And it is like an anthem, but it's not corny and which is the swing of starstruck. got the call saying oh by the way do you want us to write anything else because when it can't do our album and we went yes yes please <laughs> and then they were literally coming thick and fast and you know they wrote the song for the water ballet and literally and half jackie song and the demos would arrive and then david atkins would be in the office going i've got all the water polo players out there they're ready to start rehearsing and who are going to do the water ballet and we're like hang on a second we're just listening to this tune they've just sent in we're like oh it's great it's great take it and so you know, off he'd run with it and it was amazing and it was one of those you know showbiz stories at the last minute the band you know the, I mean Phil could never look me in the face or the eye actually could do it he could write music for the story for the characters for the mood and so that's how he ended up with so many of his songs and actually later on he did go on to be a film composer and, and right. for quite a while yeah another Australian film that I absolutely adore The Big Steel I'm pretty sure that's his music for that film, isn't it? Yes, it is. So, I mean, it's just one of those things that when we really, we were really down to the wire. I naively thought this is an easy thing to do, but there's a reason why there's only a few people in the world who can write songs and musicals and that because it actually is a really hard. Now I think I'd heard you say in an interview that at some stage In Excess and Men at Work had been considered. Were they approached or did they send demos? No, we did think about In Excess and actually Michael Hutton auditioned for the role of the, the character. Not wasn't I don't think it was to be the band but it was to maybe actually play the main speaking role of Joe's boyfriend who they had the little band, the Wombat but in the end, we decided we probably, I mean, he, you know, he, he wasn't really an actor and he wasn't quite right. So we decided to go with an actor for that. And although the Wombat band, all of them had experience in bands and could sing and so on. So there were a group of actors. We sort of did the monkeys with that. But no, I think the thing, the word about men at work and in excess, we may have, we were tossing around ideas for various bands, but it was only after the film came out in America. When Starstruck came out, there was no knowledge or of Australian music or bands at all. MTV hadn't started, which was really the thing that broke those bands. So 
I think like all those bands were playing and really big deal here. Um, and so they were probably on our list. But I, it was so it was only a year later when MTV opened and it was really because Australia had such fantastic music videos that were all made by Swinburne Art School graduates like me. Mm. Um, and because of all those years of countdown, the filmmakers and the bands in Australia had really got it down to a really fine art. And there were some brilliant, brilliant clips being made like Richard Lowenstein's for In Excess and so on and like the, whoever did the really clever one for Men at Work. And it was only such regret that when we opened, we were this weird nowhere land because Australian films were basically seen by educated film buffs because we were a foreign film. So the people who went to French movies went to Australian movies. Well, then this film comes along, which is sort of like, what? It's pop music and it's, you know, <laughs> sort of got teen cast and teenagers in America had never, you know, I mean, Australian music was like music from Botswana land or something, you know, like a joke. Nobody would even thought, had nobody knew how sophisticated our music scene was. And it was really a year later when David Elphick, the producer, and I were kicking ourselves when the Australian music scene, you know, when Men at Work and In Excess and so on just went through the roof after all their clips were shown on MTV. And we were like, oh, you know, only this had happened earlier. And of course, you know, I'm sure. And then David probably said, oh, you know, and to think we could have all those bands, we could have had any of them. It was interesting to think the swingers must have, maybe they broke up a, a year after our film came out because they didn't make it internationally like so many of the other Australian bands so well that's the break timing and it's a, it's a fluke you know, yes. it's a fluke so showbiz I'm thinking about just you and me la-da-da-dee there ain't no place I'd rather be la-da-da-da la-da-da-da So while we're on the subject of music for the film, in terms of the visuals, how difficult were the musical performances in the film to stay? The big ones are the one in the Armadillo Club. Before I found out or made the connection about Brian Thompson and the Rocky Horror Picture Show, I thought to myself, that scene, there's something very time war about it with the choreography. But in terms of visually moving your camera around and having a certain look for it, how difficult was that to stage as it was to stage in the pub when Joe Kennedy's singing Body and Soul or towards the end, the final scene in the Opera House? We had some huge numbers to stage and I, I, it was all of us, including Russell Boyd, the cinematographer, and, and me, um, none of us had done a musical before. I did have very clear ideas about how I wanted the choreography to look. That's why I chose David Atkins because I thought that he had a like a rebellious streak. So I don't want pretty dancing, you know. I want it to be bold. I mean, I, I think some he did was really ahead of his time. I mean, if you think of you know, Billy Elliot and even Matilda now, where people lie upside down on the floor or they dance on chairs, and David did all that. I mean, it was he was really, really brilliant, and he was great too with crowds, which is one of the famous for because he started choreographing Olympics all around the world. So, so that was sort of the dance thing. I mean, I can talk about some of them more specifically, where, for instance, I want to live in a house.
and, and David, you know, we both agreed, well, the boys aren't real dancers, but let's make it feel like a sort of like a Hard Day's Night clip. It was our little tribute to oh, nice. um, the hard, you know, hard Day's Night. And he and I found, I mean, was, we shot that scene at the old ABC studios in Artarman. I mean, ABC was still there. And we did it in and out of the corridors because he went from leaving Joe in the dressing room down the corridors, down the stairs, and then we wanted it to end up in the giant set department where he was, you know, going to get on this truck which had a house on it and drive off. So David, with me, um, we planned all the shot and the dance around those faces. So he, when I think he did it brilliantly and it was sort of limited movement but enough that the boys could actually do it and do it really well. It's still very um, exciting to watch. I mean, I, I see a point about it being limited but in terms of your own visual style and what they did, it's very exciting. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that really came together as a piece in that space but we shot that about sort of halfway through the movie so we by then had hit our stride in, and I felt a lot more confident with all the dance stuff but in the early I think we started off inside the pub so the interior of the pub is a set because I know lots of the people got very disappointed when they turned up at the real harbour view and opened the door and the, and the harbour bridge mural wasn't there and the bar wasn't circular and but yeah no we could never shop there for the very reason that even though Stephen wrote the story the whole thing is that there there is not enough space but also that you can't the train goes by and stops conversation right. which is something he wrote in the script and we you know did that in the set in the soundtrack later the thing that was that I didn't realise is, I mean, I knew I need more angles in a dance because you want to be able to build up a rhythm. But the thing that I didn't realise is dancers get tired. I mean, they can't do take after take after take. So I could get you know different angles and so on. That was one thing that early on we I had to go back to the producers and say, you know, I know this is going to be expensive, but we're going to we need a couple more cameras. I mean, I was quite often shooting two, but I think we had to get a third camera. Uh, yes, so that the dance that means that they didn't have to do it quite as many times. I was a bit, oh, really? Oh, they, they do get tired. They're all, they're all sweaty and out of breath. Right. So, yeah, we were learning as we went along. But, yeah, no, I did sort of plan and storyboard. And I spoke to David early on. I mean, he knew he had to get on to, we had to cast all the people who were going to do dance routines early so they could practice. That was good for two reasons. One, in the end, so we cast all these character actors to be in the pub and quite a few of them actually had come from Vaudeville. So they actually had a bit of dance experience because, you know, when you're in Vaudeville, you had to be able to do it all. You would it be like Pat Everson? Pat would have done a bit of Vaudeville, but more like did Halen and Norm, the old blokes who sat, you know, who had the bit smaller part who were sitting around. Yes. Pat had been like a grand actress, but more the smaller part. And they're all the ones that did have to actually get up and really start dancing and doing all sorts of choreography bits up and around the bar and actually fantastic because they had to meet sort of every Sunday to rehearse and then obviously they had to do more when we got closer to the time but by the time I came to shoot the scene with them in the bar they were like old pals they were like people who did meet every day in the bar because they'd all become friends during the dance rehearsal. also meant that I could go out and look at them. I didn't have an iPhone or video camera or anything those days, but I would sort of sketch roughly and do floor plans of what they were doing. So then I could, you know, and then take maybe some fills and stuff, so then I could go away and plan what would be the best angle. And you had this huge 
dance rehearsal thing going, and with Ross and Joe as well, singing rehearsals and so on. We were really making a musical. It was fantastic. We actually, the one thing about making a musical is, you know, quite often, I mean, it is incredibly tiring making a film. There's a lot of sitting around and waiting and so on. But as soon as we called playback and the backing track came on and everyone started to dance, it's amazing how joyous that is. It was such fun. I mean, we did all finish saying we must do another one, and I can't believe 30 years have gone by, <laughs> and I haven't done another musical. Every time I watch that scene of Body and Soul in the pub, it really does make me feel joyous, and I've got to say that that's possibly, like, if I had to write a list of 10 favourite scenes from the movies, then that song would definitely be in my top 10. It's just, everyone looks so happy, and yet, as you say, because they're not all necessarily professional dancers they have some dance experience but it's not yeah. made to look slick and professional no. like it would be in a in a specific dance musical they bring themselves across really really well and everyone's happy and, and I, I love your comparison to hard day's night i hadn't thought of that before but i completely get that yeah well hard day's night particularly in lots of song i live in the house mm. and you know because it was an all boys dough parts and stuff but yes no and I, actually as you were talking about body and soul of course i remembered you know there was we had one person who was experienced in musicals and that was i've forgotten his name he played terry lambert john omay john yeah he's up there dancing with, but he had to sort of dance a bit awkwardly he was actually a really good dancer and a really amazing singer but yes joe and ross who'd never danced before all had came good that's a wonderful tip in. It was just a B-side that David, I think, Elphick, found that one. Since then, that Tim, after all that, that, has ended up writing musicals too and done it, you know, I thought he did a great job for um, Women in Black. It was only boring and interesting. And you certainly weren't boring. I was terrible. How about a small, unusual party to help cheer you up? Hmm? Paradise Hotel, the rooftop. Uh, I'll see you there in half an hour. Coming to another musical number, I'm presuming that the rooftop pool number was homage to Busby Berkeley? It was a bit, yes, a, a bit of a tongue-in-cheek take-off, and that was the swing song, Puff. And it was that thing that, well, there were no water ballet men in Australia and David worked out, well, the best people who would be able to have the strength and be, the ability to keep afloat and be able to do things in water were um, water polo players. So he ended up recruiting, I think they were Sydney Uni uh, water polo team and they were doing in-depth rehearsals and obviously we had some advisors with this on the, um, about water ballet and stuff. But that's been funny because there have been recent screenings of Starstruck with the new beautiful National Film and Sound Archives, the sword print, and I've had a couple of times someone turned up, some you know middle-aged man who said, "I was in the water, I was in the water ballet." Oh my god! It, it, it got me through uni. You know, obviously, you know, we're all walks of life. They were doing business and accounting and so on, and yeah. And once a young girl came and said, "My dad was in the water ballet, and he's, he's so proud. He's got the poster up at home." So, so we, he made us all watch the film. So we, we all know it off by heart. You know, she was, you know, obviously not the she was too young to be the generation that saw it originally but yeah then david and i came up with the idea of sharks that, that to add that to the 
dance routine <laughs> to sort of you know, add another level of humour because that's where we're pushing all, all along. Not so much from the choreography because I'm sure David Atkins was completely on top of that, but how difficult was that for you to film because you're doing some stuff underwater and the, the, the overhead shots and I mean, how difficult was that for you to stage from a filmic perspective? Well, uh, it was tricky and adventurous. I'm trying to think if we had video split then. Or we might have had a primitive video split. I've just got a feeling that I, I might have had to be in a wetsuit or something. Um, <laughs> um, to, but yes, and, and Russell Boyd was definitely in a wetsuit. So we obviously shot some stuff in a pool and then we did the um, a pool where we, we could take the cameras underwater and so on. And, and then we chose that wonderful location of the pool that was on top of that motel. It was off Oxford Street, actually. And it had great neon, which was Brian Thompson's trademark, getting neon into whenever he can. And <laughs> that, that's Mr. Rocky Horror Show, yes. It worked out very well. But it was tough, yes, mm. as, as the song says. I enjoy a good sing-song now and then, but I've never used my voice to attract men. Now, you had some veteran actors in the film, like you know, Max Cullen, who had a permanent parrot on his shoulder, and Pat yes. Everson and Sid Halen having a small role. And How did they become involved with the film, and how did they treat you as a second-time film director? Oh, I wasn't just a second-time film director. I was a huge star. My brain career was like a worldwide hit. <laughs> oh, my apologies. Um, yes, but also, actually, I've really never had any issue with cast. I mean, I love actors, and I really, really enjoy working with them, and so maybe they sense that. There was once a European actor I worked with who I realised sometimes he didn't like a woman telling him certain, like anything technical for mm-hmm. some reason. Yep. But once I worked that out, I would just get the DP to tell him anything technical. He was happy to talk to me about his character and motivation, but if I ever asked him anything to do with something that would affect the camera, he for some reason didn't like a woman telling him that. But he was an older, incredibly wonderful European actor, so I, I forgave him. <laughs> But, but no, no, Max is great fun to work with. He actually had a, a Max is in my brilliant career. He plays Judy's character, goes off to be um, a governess with a poor family that owed her father money. Yes. Max the dad. So it was lovely having him back. Max likes his speciality, and, and a couple of them were left in the film. Is just before I call cut, he improvises an extra line or, or a little funny gag or something. So there's a few of Max's specialities in. So he would be, he would have been very happy about that. <laughs> Bathroom quick, Nana's checking on her dentures. And Margot Lee, who played Pearl, the mum, Margot also had sort of a, a slight comedy review background as well. And, you know, she was also an absolute treat to work with. Use yourself in these ridiculous clothes all you like. Won't change who you are or what you are. And Pat was so good and so brave as Nana. I'm sitting on an old bottom that's beginning to resemble a squeeze box. Ah, there's no future. I've outlived my use, and so is this pub. And Nana's dog, by the way, was my sister's dog, Sam, the red cattle <laughs> dog. And Sam, that was her second role because she had actually was Judy's dog at the very end of my brilliant career. The trick with Sam was she would do anything for a stick. So in my brilliant <laughs> career, we, we just put the stick in Judy's pocket. So Sam just happily followed her into the sunset. And obviously when Sam had to lie next to Nana's bed or so. So, so no primit on a dog. That's for the real film, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> It was time for change. Things to rearrange. Love is strange. 
I believe that Starstruck actually had two different cuts. I've got the Blue Underground DVD here, which I think is about 90-something minutes, but I've been told that there was like an original 105-minute Australian release. Is that right, that there was like an Australian edit and a shortened American edit? Yep. So after we sold it in America, they said that maybe it's a tiny bit long, and a director up there film was completely neurotic. You cut anything out, mostly. You know, nothing's good enough. So I, I got talking to cutting at the very opening of the film was a dream Ross was at school at the desk and he falls asleep and all his favourite characters jump through the wall and singing Starstruck um, and it's a mix of David Bowie and it's Marilyn Monday so it's you know movie stars and and then in, in the end he's driving a bulldozer and smashes through the wall it's quite an intricate thing. and the swingers are in it they come through the wall and those very shy boys all learnt a proper dance routine they the sort of like real sort of old-fashioned musical dancing they were very huh. proud of themselves so I recently saw it and someone put it up on YouTube I think and I thought oh why did I cut that <laughs> I, I love it um, why did I cut it oh no one other thing we cut so after Joe and her boyfriend I think his name in the film is Robbie but it was Ned Lander played it when they actually after they broke up they had sort of a love song in the empty bar mm. now and I cut it as well because I thought that it was pulling everything down but now when I think about it it probably just needed to be shorter not completely gone but I was in paranoid director mode and thought oh well yeah no a musical should be shorter let me take a couple of big bits out but to keep it moving and so that's why the American version was shorter yeah. and then what happened when we restored the print at the, with the National Film and Sound Archive two years ago they said when we did those changes for Americans we had cut all the soundtrack so they didn't have the original long version and you know we'd change the negatives so the film now is a shorter version it's the American version so when we've had some screenings like at the Melbourne Film Festival I've had a few disappointed fans Oh, I was going to ask what version because I had heard that there was a Melbourne Film Festival screening recently. And... It was a huge screening. It was wonderful. All the fans came and um, and Molly sneaked in and was sitting up the back and everyone was cheering and crying. And actually, I've got to say that it, it was so the restored version was run at the Adelaide Festival and then Brisbane, then Melbourne, and then it did have a, a screening in Sydney, but not as part of a festival. And so the first screening was at Adelaide, and I thought. Who's going to turn up in Adelaide on Saturday afternoon to see this old film? And I couldn't believe, you know, it was full. And then the head, Amanda Duffy, the head of the Adelaide Festival, said to me, I want to introduce it. And I thought, oh, that's very kind. And she went to the microphone and she said, this film changed my life. I saw it as an 11 or 12-year-old girl in Maitland, New South Wales. And it made me decide I wanted to do that. I wanted to be in that world. I wanted to be in the art. And I look at her and I thought, oh, my God, she sort of... God, I just realised she dresses a bit like Jackie. She's got <laughs> her hair dyed red. Yeah. And that's been what's happened at all these screenings. The fans that were 11 and 12 who basically had seen the clips on Starstruck and who started, who went to see the film many times, they all turned up and they're in their 40s and said, because of this film, I felt it was possible in Australia to be like Jackie and Angus, which was, I mean, this underlying theme of the story was about being a rebel and being finding your own way of doing things. And these people put their hand up and said, I went into dance or I went into music. And one guy in Melbourne said, I saw it when I was 
sort of, I'm a record producer. And being like these sort of born again sessions where I thought if only Stephen McLean, the writer, was still alive to realise his little film, which, by the way, the serious film critics in Australia put down as, you know, oh, this is a bit of, you know, lightweight work and very disappointed in Gillian Armstrong who had all that potential that she wasted her time on this bit of fluff. But it actually had a powerful message and I realised it, it was so important for young people to see an Australian story. It did have something to say. I've had in Brisbane a, a guy put his hand up and said I was the projectionist at Hoyt. I've seen it 25 times or something. Wow. And he said I was a gay man in Queensland and this was the first time I'd ever seen anything in Australia that said it's okay to be gay because the Terry Lambert character, when she finds out he's gay, it's like, oh, he's gay. You know, it's no big deal, no drama. And there's a happy scene on the rooftop pool where you see Terry with his boyfriend and it's just no big deal. And I realised really it was quite a brave little film and I'm so proud that it did affect people's lives in a positive way. wanted to ask you about, and I hope this isn't me overthinking this too much, but mm-hmm. I I saw this sort of like a thematic arc connecting my brilliant career, Starstruck, and High Tide that reflects the genesis, the breakthrough, and the aftermath of a creative career. So you have Judy Davis in my brilliant career saying, well, I want to do something either with music or with writing, and just as the film is ending... She's sending off her manuscript and hoping it's going to be great. And then in Starstruck, Joe Kennedy's character, by the end of the film, she's had a big shot in the Sydney Opera House and we know that her life lies ahead of her. And in High Tide, Judy Davis's character is on the road with an Elvis cover band. And it's the creative career hasn't quite gone the way she might have otherwise sort of hoped. So it sort of seemed in some ways it could have been the same character across the three films. It was doing something like that across those films, was that a deliberate thing on your part? No, absolutely not. And actually, I was really offended, not by you, um, by oh. critics, that after I did Star Trek, they said, oh, she's done another film about a redhead woman who wants to be famous. And oh, I just yeah. thought, oh, great. That, yeah, well, I'm just this bimbo that all I care about is fame. For me, my brilliant career was about a woman's role and finding out that my options are really narrow. I'm a, a young girl in the 1890s, and basically, if I don't find a man, I'm going to be living in poverty or I'm, you know, I'm going to be a spinster aunt. And for me, Starstruck was actually about, it, it was about a brother and sister, about, and it was about putting on, on a show and finally making it, but in a really sort of loving, tongue-in-cheek way. Yeah, whereas I didn't think, you know, yes, I suppose in some ways Brilliant Creek was that she did make it and that her first book was this huge hit. But no, I, it was one of those things I thought, oh, God, I mean, I went out to try and do something different and everyone's just finding the things that tie it together. And the high tide, which was completely, was really about a woman who'd been running and it's about a bad mother. It was originally written that was about a bad father and he was a surfer that was drifting around coastal towns and that's how he comes across his kid. It turns out to be his daughter. So when we changed it and flipped it to make it the main character a woman, the part that Judy played, we had to come up with a way, why is she drifting around coastal towns? And then I remembered that Judy in her real life, before going to NIDA had been, because she's a really good singer, had been in a very bad backup band that had been touring <laughs> Asia. I mean, she's the one who said, told me that they were bad. I don't know how bad they were. And I thought, maybe we should do something like that. You know, Judy can be a backup singer, and therefore the band is going around second-rate RSL. So it was just fortuitous in the end. 
but she was meant to be a drifter that really didn't know what she wanted in life. I mean, yes, with High Tide, I don't think you ever thought that was going to be about a character who finally stormed the opera house. But because really the story was about whether or not she could stop running, face her demons, and give to this daughter that wanted her. But we did have fun doing the tacky stage show with the obvious impersonator and with Frankie J. Holden, I've got to say. So, yeah, no, of course, I love a musical, so I, it was great to have that chance. So, so, so there was a yeah. question I forgot to ask you earlier, was did you grow up a fan of musicals? Yes, oh, yes, Lee, I'm currently watching Fosse Verdon. Um, oh, wonderful. Only just releasing. Cabaret is one of my very favourite films. I mean, it was a breakthrough at that time. But as a, a younger kid, you know, midday movie, I would be watching Mickey and Judy putting on a show and would, you know, turn up songs that were from musicals that were on. And yeah, no, no, all those early Hollywood musicals, so imaginative and such great dancing and, and still such and fantastic songs. If I'm in New York, I will go and see whatever is the latest musical. I do love me. And I know people who really don't like musicals at all. But no, no, I love them. I'll be honest, I've never really understood the people who say that they don't like a musical. For me, I've always gone and said to my friends, I said, the musical is just another establishment of this particular world. The rules of this world are that they can burst out into song. Don't say that, oh, it's not realistic, because how many times in real life do you see two guys punching each other senseless that can still walk away with no more than a yeah, slight yeah. cut on their face? Yeah, no, I was thinking, yeah, and all those, you know, action films where people, you know, jump off giant buildings and all that. But, yeah, no, I have also, I should say, that whole thing of the light going down and then, you know, the curtain and, and the overture playing in the dark mm. and then the curtains opening. I remember seeing Peter Pan and, you know, you were taken into this magic world with the lighting and live orchestra and it, it's still the same when it's great i just think it's a really a wonderful special thing the experience of a musical just want to come back briefly to Starstruck itself. So we've already gone and mentioned Brian Thompson before, who had worked on the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And the film is full of these strong, vivacious colours, which seem to be a hallmark of a lot of Australian films as the 80s or and 90s went on, some of the bigger films. Was Brian chosen based on what he'd done on Rocky Horror Picture Show? Did you say, right, that's the sort of look I want for Starstruck? Or how did he come to be involved? I was a big fan of Brian's and and seen some theater, other theatre stuff he'd done as well. But I chose Luciana Rigi, who was my, actually my brilliant career production and costume designer. And she said, what if I do it with Brian? And because he he has got such an eye for pop culture. So they were a great team. He pushed her as well with some, with the costumes. So, that, and they, so they had such fun. And, you know, Brian just went to town. We knew, you know, we purposely were doing this sort of tongue-in-cheek thing about the kitsch things with Sydney and Australiana as well. And, you know, with the, the kids that lived under the bridge and the dream was to go to the opera house. And the, he had the harbour view with little freezes all along, you know, on the walls and, you know, the beautiful mosaic. But definitely... I was a huge admirer and still am hmm. of Brian's. Actually, I just, just saw his um, West Side Story talking about musicals and talking about clever Brian was on the harbour. He did a great set with packing cases, um, the, you know, the packed cases that come on the ship. 
but but yes, no, we talked together about making things brave and bold. I know the one thing that he was he, he was also do, he and Lucci were also doing an opera in Adelaide. They sort of came back and forth. The only thing that we changed when he was not there and he was a little unhappy, it was the interior of the Lizard Lounge, which was where Jackie sat in temper temper. And, you know, and there was that wonderful lizard bar that he'd originally designed at a sort of like high key that it was all white walls and white floor. But then Russell Boyd said, "Well, I can't create any mood because it's." He said, it's got to all go dark. So that was really the only thing that Brian's would change. But I think his harbour bridge at the end, the set that he designed when they had the break-in at the um, Opera House, which actually the interior is at the Seymour Centre because we couldn't afford the stage at the Opera House. That wonderful bridge, because that's another real Brian symbol, with the lights that were on the bridge. So I worked out that whole routine where they climb across it and I could shoot the kids climbing, you know, from one side of the stage to the other and sort of at the final part of it, which I still love watching, I've got to say. But I think my editor, too, Nicholas Bowman, did a really wonderful job in that final scene when um, Jackie and Angus, you know, finally attack the stage and then she comes down in the uh, in the ballroom, her mother's ballroom dress. Yes, it's one of my favourite parts of the film. You mentioned before about the NFSA restoration of Starstruck. Is the film likely to get a new Blu-ray release anytime soon? Um, actually, I should talk to them about that because now that we have it restored and I know a lot of people have asked and saying also they want the soundtrack we had a screening in New York a year ago um, at the Lincoln Center of the restored print struck fans managed to get there through the snow um, mm-hmm. even the projectionist turned up with his double album for me to sign so yes we've got little fans out there worldwide who oh. hung on to their albums over the and the album the original album was an absolute collector's item because it was designed by Paul Worsted who did our opening and closing titles and it had a, a 3D thing it opened up and it was the Harbour Bridge oh wow yeah so someone might put their copy up on YouTube so you can see but it was it's a beautiful and incredible work of art I mean we did in the end have a fantastic release in Australia Hoyt's got really behind it which is you know all credit due to David Elphick my producer who had them really hyped and it was we took over the Hoyt Cinemas which is in Sydney in top of George Street and now the event cinemas but it used to be this two level mezzanine that, and we we had the best opening night party for Starstruck in Sydney with and the band that were playing called the Cock- Cockroaches which is the appropriate thing to band in the film as a wombat and half those boys in that band who were like the top party band at the time went on to form another little band yes. where they walked the Wiggles yeah so I thank the Wiggles it was, they were a great party band it was like a night of night. I've seen Murray from The Wiggles. He's now performing in uh, Sydney band John Kennedy's, oh, I think, uh, I'm not sure what he calls himself now, uh, um, John Kennedy's Midlife Crisis. And they performed in Melbourne for a previous album launch a couple of years ago. I was just absolutely knocked out by his musicianship. Absolutely fantastic. Hot potato, hot potato. Hot potato, hot potato. Hot potato, hot potato. Potato. Potato, potato, potato. Of course, I uh, crack Wiggles jokes at him all night, but he was quite good with that. (laughs) Now, talking of musicianship, I've forgotten a really important thing. So after Cameron Allen walked away from the film, we had Mark Moffat, who was sort of going to be the music producer, and he ended up really taking over. And he was incredibly uh, dedicated, and he was wonderful with both with Joe. She never recorded before, and, and basically this wasn't her sort of music she she'd come from this punk band in Melbourne and, and so on 
and he was very, very patient, and, and he, he really did an amazing job. And we had Janice Later, the singer, as her vocal coach as well, and the two of them were you know, really wonderful. I mean, Joe was, he had no idea like you don't when you're young that this was such a big thing you know I remember her turning up to a recording session and she'd been out at something the night before and got all wet and she turned up the first recording session with a cold so we you know a lot of patience was needed from the behind the scenes team and the opposite you know Molly Meldrum produced I Want to Live in the House and I really think he did a great job and that was a perfect song for Ross but he was recording Ross over and over all day and all night so by the end of that session Ross had lost his voice but all those things were going on behind scenes but somehow we could manage to pull it together and I think find and some great songs and you do know that it's now being developed as a musical do you know this this was my next question I had read something online that it's being developed in Sydney as a stage musical and given that uh, some of our other films have been uh, turned into a stage musical this one screams out for the treatment how closely aligned are you with the stage show well only in that they've been you know they've invited me to the initial I've sent them you know had a bit of discussion and sent them a few notes and I was involved in the announcement which was a drink thing at NIDA with the investors. The musical is being made by the same producer that produced Priscilla, Gary McQueen. It's a huge success around the world and by the way over the years right from the beginning with Starstruck first in America we we had offers and talk and different things but they'd always fallen through but this is on its way. So they're doing the first workshop at NIDA um, with the final year musical comedy students I think it'll be this October and I'll they're obviously inviting me and so on and said they want my feedback. And then it's basically, I mean, Gary's theory, and he's right, is you have to workshop these things as much as possible, you know, and then, so, but they're aiming that it will then get some sort of Australian run and then, you know, see how it goes. So that's fantastic that it's going to have a new life. That's magnificent, and I'm sure yeah. that the film will get a new lease of life after that as well. Yes, that's true, because it's one of those things that, that it, you know, time goes by, and a lot of time has gone by, and there's a whole generation who would never have known. So mm. there's been a few people, young people, who were dragged along some of the um, recent screenings who said that it had stood the test of time and that the music had. So we'll see. There'll probably be a few new songs they were explaining to me in their right. You know, if there's a musical, for instance, the per character has a song and, you know, you think, oh, it's, oh, yeah, no, you're right. So there'll probably be some new ones. So and Mushroom are involved again and so we'll see. I imagine surely they'd have to use, like, body and soul because that's so iconic or the starstruck theme. There'd have to be some yes. reference to yeah, the original yeah. songs. Yes, that's, I did. I, that was my only quote. Well, don't throw the baby be out with the bathwater. There's a lot of fans out, fans out there. Yeah. <laughs> So just to finish off, uh, what is it that you're working on now, Jelly? Um, I've got a few things that are in development. I'm also sort of leaning towards being more uh, producer, creative producer. Mm -hmm. And there's, yes, a couple of tips coming along very well, so we'll see. Over here or uh, in Hollywood? Here. Okay, here. wonderful. Yeah, um, I really reached the point where I can pick and choose. And actually, you know, the best stuff is happening in, in TV, TV drama and stuff. We're all binging and streaming and so on. And people have said to me, well, you know, do you want to go and do that? I'm like, no, at this stage of my life, I don't want to go out and shoot eight hours. It was, it was tough enough shooting 90 minutes. <laughs> 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 
that, yes, but I'm happy to develop something that some other director can set their alarm for 4.30am and go stand <laughs> in the mud and the, and the rain. Yeah, you never say no. There just could be that one thing that I just think nobody else can do this but me. Well, Gillian, thank you so much. It's been an absolute treat to be able to talk to you about uh, Starstruck and we hadn't even really touched on all the other myriad of films and documentaries that you've done, but, but this is an absolute treat. Really, really appreciate your time. No, 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 no. Starstruck is a special baby and as I said, I've been so affected by knowing how many young people, people who saw it when they were young and how important the story was to them and, and I, I thought if only Stephen, well maybe Stephen McLean is watching from the great music room in the sky up there with his friend Lillian Roxon right now. So yes, no, no, I really appreciate that we've had such loyal fans and as I said, and that great team that helped me make the film with Russell Boyd, Brian Thompson and Lucci and, and David Atkins. Yeah, no, it, it it's one of those little things. As I said, it, there were a lot of nightmares along the way, but we got there. And, you know, obviously, in the end, the heart of it was finding um, Joe Kennedy and Ross O'Donovan, who were our perfect. They really yeah. are a great team. They were re- really our little stars. And they got along so well. And, and in some ways, they were sort of like the characters. And I think that comes through, that they really cared for each other. Mm. So, yeah, I'm proud of that. All right. Well, once again, thank you very much. Thank you. We'll, time. We'll be back in a moment to uh, talk about what's happening on next month's episode of See Here Podcast. And my thanks once again to Gillian Armstrong for taking the time to uh, speak to us at See Here about her recollections of the 1982 film Starstruck. She's made many things, made many films, documentaries, TV shows, both in Australia and in the States. And the fact that uh, she was so willing to talk about just this one film, although admittedly she did say that this was her baby, this was a particular favourite of hers. But we're very, very grateful that she was so gracious with her time to talk about this one film from a very long time ago. And also I'd like to give a big thank you to Natalie at HLM Management for setting that interview up with us. So many thanks to you, Natalie. Really appreciate it. All right. Well, before we talk about what's happening on episode 66 of See Here, Paul. Yes. Thank you very much. It was a brief but sweet, and we'll definitely have you back on the show to talk about a film with Bernie and Tim and myself in greater depth. This is short but sweet. However, I'd like to just sort of have you talk for a couple of minutes about your own activities. Now, I know that you've done some script writing. You studied script writing, and I was very, very excited to catch one of the cartoons that you wrote the story for on the early weekend television last year. I got very excited as if it was someone in my family, like my son. <laughs> so um, tell us a little bit about your script writing work and also your work at RMITV. Yeah, I've written a couple of episodes of the uh, animated children's show Jar Dwellers SOS during the second season of the show. And that if you're in Australia and you're listening to this episode, the episodes are currently being repeated on 10 Peach, or you can also find them online at 10 Play, one of my episodes is currently up it's uh, season two episode 17 and mine is the second half of the episode it's a story called party pooper and so for the last few years i've been writing content for rmi tv which is the student television production um, of rmit university and i'm currently writing for the current segment of the satirical current affairs show the leak and we have episodes uh, run live to facebook on wednesday nights and uh, airing on channel 31 
one in Melbourne on Monday nights. How can people catch those episodes? Do they need to like the leak or do they end up going to YouTube? If you want to see it live, uh, just go to The Leak on Facebook and you can find old episodes of the show both on the Facebook page and on The Leak's YouTube channel. We've got uh, every episode from the past six seasons of the show there. I'll be including... Uh the link up in the show notes for this program. Thank you. If you want to follow my uh, latest doing sayings, rantings, I'm always on Twitter, and my handle is at p underscore t underscore Ryan. Huge thanks for being a part of this, and as I said, I'll have you on the show again sometime later this year. We'll find another music-related film that uh, you're excited about, and we can sure talk at greater length about it and make sure that Skype actually works for all of us on the line. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. All right. So episode 66 of See Here, which will be out in July of 2019. Now, I think it was Tim's pick, and Tim has already mentioned to us off air what it is that he wants. So next month's film is a documentary about The Damned. So Eric Peterson, if you're listening to this, I can see the smile on your face. The name of the documentary is called Don't You Wish That We Were Dead. Now, I confess my knowledge of The Damned is very minimal. I've only listened to a little bit, but I'm going to be educated or edumacated. Uh, I think that uh, Tim and Bernie will be doing the heavy lifting and I'll probably say some stupid things. But um, anyway, that'll be next month. Really looking forward to that. If you wish to uh, join in the conversation at the uh, Facebook group and talk about any manner of music-related films, then you can join us at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash C here. That's S-W-H-E-A-R. If you wish to download more episodes of this show, you probably already have your favorite way through your podcast app of choice. But uh, you can get us through Spotify, you can get us through Stitcher, and I don't know for how much longer you can get us from iTunes because I hear rumors that Apple is getting rid of that, so I don't know what that means in the long term for how people download the show. But uh, I don't think that you absolutely need it. We have our RSS feed through our podcast server, which is Podbean. So if you want to get us, you can also get us through seehere.podbean.com. But for the moment, as of this day when I'm recording this, you can get us through iTunes as well. So I think that pretty much covers it. So all I want to do is just uh, remind you to be nice to each other, have body and soul. You should all want to live in a house and be tough. I'm making all these really terrible jokes from the film, never mind. But uh, most of all, search out Starstruck, the 1982 film, not the 2000 and whatever it is film yes. from the States. Well, have you seen it? No, I just I just know that that's the first thing that comes up on the IMDb when you search for Starstruck, which mm -hmm. is a little bit frustrating. But the Starstruck that we're talking about here, that's the second thing that comes up. That's the one you should be checking out. All right, there you go. Starstruck from 2010. Jessica Olsen was expecting a normal trip to California with her family to visit her grandma. However, she agrees to join her older sister to find the famous pop star, Christopher Wilde. No. I don't think we'll be covering this one. I don't think we'll be covering that one, no. So go search at Starstruck from 1982 as directed by Jillian Armstrong and give it some love. It deserves your love. The songs need to be sung along with. You need to dance around the room. You need to dance around your local pub singing that song. You need to get up on the bar and dance to this song, and hopefully no one will toss you out, although yes. that does happen in the film. Until next month, be nice to each other, sing a few songs, watch some great movies, watch some shit movies, yes. and uh, we'll speak to you next month. All the best, and thanks very much, Paul. Thank you very much, Morris. Cheers.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.